on episode four of Inside the Lens. I sit down with Dan Llewellyn, uh, a very entertaining and enigmatic engineer in the space of uh, full spectrum and extra spectrum photography. Uh, This is another geeky episode, and I hope you enjoy the talk uh, involving light that we can't see with our own eyes and all the uses it has both for photographic art uh, and for everything from agriculture and science. I'm here with uh, Dan Llewellyn. Uh, Dan, I've uh, I've been a fan of yours, even though you didn't know it for a little while. Um, your uh, labyrinth of a website in the past has always entertained me because it's got a wealth of really useful but very obscure knowledge about uh, photography uh, outside of the vis- uh, visual spectrum. And uh, I've dabbled in that quite a bit. And it's great to have you on the podcast. And uh, I... This conversation is going to be one of the geekiest and funnest that I've had, and we've had some pretty geeky ones before you. So uh, I hope you're up to the challenge. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I should probably explain that I started this business in um, around 1997 in my basement, and it uh, grew from something I was doing uh, at night to a full-time job. And now we have a commercial uh, building in Carlstadt, New Jersey, where we operate out of. Um, and the website also has uh, grown over the years. And it's been one of those sorts of things where we start off on uh, an old uh, Microsoft front page, front page platform and information was added and new products were created. Um, so there, it ended up being kind of a mishmash of uh, information just because it had grown to so many hundreds of pages over the years and it was hard to uh, figure out how to categorize everything um how do you present all the information you know for instance do you have um one heading that says infrared products and then you have infrared cameras then you have infrared inks and infrared filters or do you have a section that says cameras and then under that you have infrared cameras and monochrome cameras or whatever so um we recently went through a a major site redesign that should be a little bit better but um but it's a it's a lot of work maintaining all the information that's there and figuring out how to present it the philosophy of the website is that it's 95 percent content and maybe five percent sales so it's um part of the sales process is giving people information so that they can uh, understand what you're doing and then make an educated decision about what to purchase. Right. So no. then I, the, the interesting thing then is, and I, I kind of, we skipped over it. What is it that you do, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hard to explain. It's, um, it's basically working with light in many different forms and it can be, uh, we, take cameras apart and modify them to see different spectral ranges. We have special inks and phosphors and dyes and filters, uh, light sources. Um, the, one of the interesting things about light is that, um, or just about electromagnetic energy really is that everything is both absorbing and emitting, uh, energy at various frequencies. And when you start, looking at how something absorbs and emits energy, you can learn a lot about it. So, you know, you might be looking at uh, skin and trying to detect skin cancer, or you might be looking at the sun and you're trying to um, 
look at the um, hydrogen uh, H-alpha line, or you might be looking in the UV and you're looking for um, for something else. So it's it, there's just so many different things you can do with light that it's it's hard to um, it's hard to put a handle on it. Well, I mean, we should... both scientifically and uh, for photographic art. I mean, the, the, these two kind of run in tandem. And I know that a lot of people get cameras converted to infrared photography because it offers a, um, I, I call it almost like a view into a parallel universe because everything is the same, but slightly different because uh, a different frequency of light will interact with different objects in a way that is not expected in the visible spectrum. And then, sure. and so this is a very easy way for us to just kind of step outside of our own reality and see the world in an entirely different way. It is the way the world is. It's just not the way that we normally see it. Right, right. Well, the, when you get into, say, infrared uh, photography, the, um, uh, the infrared wavelengths are longer and they get um, less scattered by dust and haze. So you can um, see further, like if you're doing, say, landscape photography, it's going to be... Uh, a sharper image than in the visible um, <clears throat> but if you're uh, but there are also other aspects like when you look at say vegetation the uh, trees will look white because they're reflecting infrared energy because the uh, the longer infrared wavelengths don't have enough energy to support photosynthesis well, and it's uh, important to think here too that it's not that a green leaf turns into a white leaf in infrared any leaf color so like if you've got a purple maple tree for example um, it will still reflect a lot of infrared light and appear white in infrared it's not like one thing translates into another it's a completely separate idea and as you were just explaining and sorry for cutting you off that uh the infrared light can't be used for photosynthesis and thereby it's simply just reflected almost all of it ends up being reflected right there's a um, uh what they call the red edge which is at uh, 680 nanometers where the chlorophyll becomes highly re reflective and the plant is also absorbing blue light and red light. It reflects some green, which is why we see the plants as green. And um, when the plant is healthy, it reflects the infrared light the strongest. And as the plant um, gets stressed, it doesn't reflect it as much. So um, one of the areas of research that um, actually came out from World War II when the U.S. military was trying to detect where um, tanks and things were camouflaged versus real vegetation is they um, uh, made an infrared film that could see um, blue light or did it saw blue light, green light and red light. But in the infrared, it, it, the blue crystals could see um, infrared light. So you'd, they put on a filter that blocked off visible blue and they would capture a infrared band and uh, they used red as the plant absorption band. And then they could they could uh, look at um, whether something was really vegetation or not. And then in the 1970s, it was uh, used by NASA to do remote sensing from space where they're categorizing um, different areas of the Earth. And one of the areas that's grown a lot for us the last number of years is that uh, some of the cameras I make are designed for vegetation remote sensing. Um, so there, I have a camera, say, that doesn't see visible blue. It sees green, red, um, and then it sees uh, infrared in the blue channel. Or we also make a camera that sees visible blue, visible green, doesn't see visible red, and then sees infrared in the red channel. And uh, these kinds of cameras are being increasingly used 
for uh, precision agriculture and uh, sensing the health of crops, uh, optimizing fertilization use, um, estimating biomass. So that's, there's just, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to my point that there's just so many different things you can do with these, um, with cameras and light once you know what you need to look for. Well, exactly. And it, it's it's funny because we don't think and you know, as a, as the, the audience of the show is, you know, sort of a, a geeky photographer when it comes down to it. We don't think of photography being used in, in all of these different ways uh, that help agriculture and science um, because our regular cameras, the way that they are designed are designed to mimic the way that we see the world, right? They're, they're designed to see just the, uh, the, the spectrum of light that, that we see uh, and no more, no less. But the actual underlying sensor inside of these cameras, um, whether it be a CCD sensor or, or a CMOS sensor, um, they're sensitive to frequencies of light well beyond our spectrum. And uh, so what then happens, uh, I, I guess I should ask you, why these cameras have a, a wider uh, sort of uh, sensory input uh, as far as spectrum goes. And how do you then start manipulating that either for to make them see what we see or to skew that to see ultraviolet or infrared or all of these different bands that have different scientific uses? Well, the sensors start off um, with a silicon photodiode, uh, whether it's a CMOS or a CCD sensor, there all these sensors are built on silicon. And um, the uh, Silicon itself is sensitive from, uh, it has peak sensitivity around 550 nanometers, which is kind of right in the middle of the green. And then it kind of, it goes down to the UV to about 300 nanometers or so. And to the infrared, it goes to about 1100 nanometers. So the camera starts off with a, a black and white photodiode. And then the manufacturers use photolithography to print a matrix of red, green, and blue dots over the top of these photodiodes. And then they place a, a uh, what's called a micro lens, which looks like half a glass marble um, over the photodiode to help concentrate the light into the, the uh, photodiode. Um, and uh, that, that's how the, these cameras typically see color other than some of the Sigma cam cameras, which um, use a different methodology to, to extract color. But, um, so then you, you end up with the surface of the, uh, sensor looking like a bunch of red, green, and blue dots. If you look at it under a microscope and, uh, there's only a couple companies in the world that make the dyes that, um, make up the color filter array, or it's, uh, a lot of times it's called a Bayer pattern, but that's a particular arrangement there's other other patterns that can be used right well i i, I want to stop in that <laughs> moment for a second because the bayer pattern is a pattern of i'm not sure if i'm going to get the exact order right but red green red green red green uh green blue green blue green blue uh red green red green it's etc uh going down and so basically you have every red pixel surrounded on the top bottom left and right by a green pixel and then the same thing for the blue and right. and the reason for that, uh, my understanding is uh, partly because the green is sort of right in the middle of the spectrum, uh, and so that can work both uh, in terms of uh, uh, of sort of a sort of a luminance versus chrominance kind of factor there, so that the green would uh, would maintain the highest level of detail, but also because human vision uh, has greater acuity within the green spectrum as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. It's uh, the Bayer pattern is typically. Um, two green pixels and then a one red and one blue um, if you make a, a square out of them. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the thinking is that 
the human eye is most sensitive to green, so that was why they um, use the most green pixels. Um, and our eyes are more sensitive to um, uh, luminance than we are to uh, chrominance. So it's um, it works out well with the silicon sensor also having a peak sensitivity around uh, 550 nanometers. So what, now why do these sensors, uh, I mean, were they intentionally engineered to detect all the way from 300 nanometers to 1100? Uh, was it a fluke? Was it like, okay, well, it does this and now we have to limit it down to the, the useful range? I'm not sure my, well, that's the response of the silicon itself. And I would guess that it has something to do with, um, they were looking for a material that had some kind of similar response to the human eye and silicon uh, worked. The um, one of the interesting things about the uh, the color dyes, though, is that they they open and close in their respective color bands, but uh, they also open up back in the infrared. So all of the the cameras have to have something called an IR cut filter or an ICF to block off where the um, color channels open up in the infrared and they uh, the red channel is the most open it stays open from the red uh, visible red right through to the limit of the silicon sensitivity but the blue and green open up um, around 800 nanometers and uh, from an electrical and optical point the dyes are completely transparent uh, from 800 nanometers up um, so one of the, when we modify a camera, what we're typically doing is removing the IR cut filter and uh, then replacing it with some other sort of filter or some other kind of uh, optical window um, to change how the uh, the camera sees light. So this is why, like, if you were to have um, uh, that IR cut filter removed and allow just the full transmission of infrared light, um, and then you replace it with a filter that has a cutoff around 720 nanometers. This is a very common um, frequency cutoff for uh, <coughs> color infrared work, right? Because you'll have the um, sort of the, the, the magic, if you will, of those glowing trees and, and usually darker skies and water, but you still have a little bit of that extra color color information coming in um, from the differences between the, the red being fully accessible and then the uh, the blue and the green uh, sort of they eventually become open at uh, at 800. But you have a narrow window where you can start to play with different false colors, right? Right, right. The most common infrared conversion is a uh, 17 uh, IR only uh, conversion where we use a, a 715 nanometer long pass filter. And uh, it's it's also a nice uh, point because, uh, or it's a nice filter to use because at 715 nanometers, if you're out in outdoor sunlight, the camera sees about as much infrared light as a stock camera sees visible light. So your exposure um, and shutter times are going to be about the same. Uh, the and, and also at 715 nanometers, you can do some creative color work by doing things like swapping the red and the blue channels or uh, so that you end up with these uh, deep blue skies and, and white trees kind of thing. Um, and then you can also play with how you mix the color channels together so you can create different sorts of effects. Um, another uh, less common conversion is an 830 nanometer long pass filter. And um, that can be interesting because the um, at that point, the red, green, and blue dyes are all equally open 
So if you if you set a custom weight balance to uh, get your levels equalized, you're going to have about a 99% monochrome picture. But uh, but you lose two stops of exposure when you go up to 830 nanometers. But another thing that you gain is that you uh, uh, will typically end up with a much sharper picture than a 715 because the lens will have less chromatic aberration. And the, um, uh, the reason for that is that most lenses are designed to focus visible light in a particular plane. So they'll, they'll use different optical elements so that the um, red, green, and blue light rays all hit the same spot. And what hap happens with most lenses is that as you go into the infrared, the focal plane keep shifting on you. So if you narrow down the bandwidth that the uh, lens is seeing, which is what you're doing when you go to an 830 nanometer conversion, then you end up with a um, sharper image because you have less of that uh, chromatic aberration and, and more of the lights focusing where it should. Um, but you also give up, um, like I said, two stops of exposure and the ability to do any creative color work. So then th this is interesting because l let's say at, uh, at 830 nanometers, you lose that and you don't have the color work. Sure. Um, would the image, regardless of the total amount of light collected, let's say we can do a different exposure, uh, would the image look different if the cutoff was 900 nanometers, 1,000, 1,100? I know that uh, you sell filters for some of these different frequencies. And so what, what would a, a, an infrared photograph look like between, say, uh, an 830 nanometer versus a 1,000 nanometer filter um, correcting for the exposure? Well, the... Um as you go into the longer and longer wavelengths, then the uh, light rays get less scattered by things like dust and haze. So if you were, say, doing a landscape um, of or shooting uh, a mountain kind of far away, as you went, went from 715 to 780 or 830, 850 to 1000, the, uh, the picture is going to get clearer because um, or sharper because the rays are getting less scattered. So you're going to be able to penetrate further through that, that smoke and haze. Um, also the, the skies get darker, the clouds get whiter. Um, so the infrared effect becomes more extreme. Um, and one thing I should mention is that say you get a 715 nanometer, uh, IR only con camera conversion that doesn't preclude you from putting an 830 filter, 830 nanometer filter or a thousand nanometer filter on your lens because you can, yeah, you can always go longer, but you can't go shorter. Right. Right. So you can do it. The, the drawback though, is that once you put that infrared filter on your lens, you can't see through your lens anymore. But nowadays most cameras have a live view feature. So you can use a live view to, uh, to figure out um, your focus and your exposure and whatnot. Yeah, I've got a, a, a Canon 5D Mark II, which is an older camera now, but still an incredibly capable piece of equipment for this kind of work. And what a lot of people do is they'll get their old <coughs> camera uh, converted when they buy a new one. And that's exactly what I had done. Um, and uh, and to that point, too, I also have a, a 5D Mark II that is converted for exclusive ultraviolet work. And uh, it's some of your handiwork, Dan. Uh, I didn't get it from you directly, unfortunately. I found it um, uh, being sold on eBay. So I got it for for quite a bargain 
because I know they don't come cheap because I know they are incredibly hard to do uh, when you're creating a monochrome ultraviolet camera. Since we're talking infrared, let's go on the other side of things and just talk about what usefulness this has uh, as a tool and uh, and possibly as, as artistry as well. Um, how do you make one of these cameras, Dan? Well, with a UV-only camera, uh, I can make them both as a UV only with the color filter array, or I can also remove the color filter array. And um, it turns out that the micro lenses and color filter array block most of the UV light. So uh, if you have a monochrome UV only camera, you can do quite a bit more than if it's a, a color UV only camera. Six times, I think, right? You've got uh, right. the ability to collect six times as much light. Um, now, the the behavior of those, um, uh, of the Bayer pattern dyes uh, in infrared, you mentioned that they all just kind of open up. Is there a, a similar behavior in ultraviolet that, let's say you wanted to make a color ultraviolet image and let's say you had the ability to, you know, collect more light or you crank up your ISO or whatever. Um, is there a similar magic to color UV work, or is it just better off to play around with uh, monochrome? Well, the monochrome cameras will certainly make your life a lot easier. There, there are some differences in the um, how the color dyes open up in the UV, but it's it's a, a, a tough thing to, to work with because the camera has such low UV sensitivity and such um, high um, IR sensitivity that it's really easy to, um, uh, especially if you're taking pictures outside, it's really easy to have a picture that you think is UV and it's really 50% infrared or something because you could just have you know, 1% IR light leakage and it's going to be like 50% of your, your image um, from uh, a UV camera uh, standpoint yeah and we were talking that we need uh, like a, a series of different filters that um I, I don't even know if you can build them into the, uh, the the camera sensor they've got to be put on the front of the lens um one that lets through pretty much all uh with fairly high uh, transmission uh, ultraviolet light and then another one that cancels out the infrared on the opposite end uh in order to uh to get you a, a relatively clean uh, ultraviolet image. And I'm sure that there's still even some small percentage of infrared that sneaks through that as well. Right. Right. Well, they, uh, we have UV filters that, um, are just ionically colored glass. And then we have UV filters that are the ionically colored glass plus, um, vapor deposition coatings to block off the, uh, infrared transmission. It turns out that, um, for some odd reason, almost all UV glass has an infrared transmission and it's, the point is usually at twice whatever its peak UV transmission is. Um, but um, uh, anyhow, even with the coatings to try to block off the infrared, uh, there's usually still a tiny bit of infrared that leaks through even a coated filter. So um, the, uh, the filters are, um, you can uh, add them onto each other. So for a UV picture out in sunlight, we typically recommend that somebody uses both um, our um, 330C filter, and uh, we have another filter that's a VP1, which is a um, it's an additional IR blocking filter. Yeah, and it, it was funny too because I, I was looking at the uh, uh, the spectral charts of these different filters, and I think that it would be kind of fun to even just play around with that BP1 filter because it has just chunks of frequency missing. It has um, uh, uh, of the spectrum missing rather, and it has the um, the infrared mostly gone, but it has the ultraviolet. 
I think that might mimic uh, kind of the way an insect might see the world, right? Because they see some of the visible spectrum and they see some of the ultraviolet spectrum at the same time. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, certain flowers will have patterns in them that are invisible to us. But if you were to capture them with an ultraviolet camera, uh, you could see those patterns. Dandelions are one that's common in just about everybody's backyard that, uh, you know, it has like a, a bullseye pattern, like a dark center in, in the middle of a dandelion. And uh, they're, they're fun little things to explore. You never know um, how the world is going to look differently in these different spectrums. Um, right. Well, and, and it's, it's, uh, interesting that some animals have, um, they have other color receptors that we don't have. So there's, you know, we, we see red, green, and blue, but, um, uh, there's animals that see some of the UV. There's animals that, um, uh, can see some thermal energy like snakes, um, there's um, uh, some animals that have other color receptors, and I'm sure there's a reason why they have them. But um, but it's interesting that other animals can actually see the world differently than the way we see it. Yeah, and uh, and so aside from playing around with invisible patterns in flowers, what is the use of an ultraviolet camera? Well, it's um, from a um, uh, just a. a person who's taking interesting pictures point of view, the UV camera is, uh, a UV picture is going to be a lot more detailed and gritty because of the shorter wavelength. So you can pick up these, um, like little tiny, um, details that pictures almost end up looking like some of these, uh, black and white depression era, uh, photographs that you sometimes see. But, um, and, the opposite is true in the infrared that everything in the infrared because of the longer wavelengths ends up looking softer and um uh and so if you take like a picture of somebody's face in the infrared they'll probably look 10 years younger if you take a picture of their face in the uv they'll probably look 10 years older yeah well um, and and so in in uv people's faces i mean you can yeah uh, from a, a dermatologist perspective you can identify certain skin disorders uh, in ultraviolet light right Right, right. You can, uh, well, you can see certain disorders, but you can also see skin damage um, that isn't visible or isn't that visible to the human eye. Uh, uh, one of my customers made a, a, a video that went viral on YouTube a couple of years ago. I think he has something like 17 million hits on it, and uh, it's called How the Sun Sees You. And it basically, he, he set up a, a UV monochrome camera and a visible camera at a park in New York uh, City and let people look at their faces in UV and in the infrared and then see what their faces look like with uh, sunscreen applied. And, um, and it's, it's pretty remarkable when you start looking at people's faces and uh, you see the, uh, the various skin damage that's happened. But um, that's, that's um, uh, one of the uses of UV. They, they also use it in forensics because you could see things like skin bruises in UV better than you would see in visible light. Um, and then there's just a variety of scientific applications where you want to capture something in the UV. Now, it, it's uh, it's interesting, too. Um, if we look at the ultraviolet, the infrared, I mean, uh, if somebody wanted to point their camera at the night sky and capture something in these other spectrums, is it worthwhile in any of those? Are you going to get anything interesting or useful or is it better just to stick with what we can see and uh, and sort of crank the gain up a little bit? Well, the and. Uh, uh, people that are doing astrophotography, they're they're typically looking for uh, cameras that have very large pixels because the um, 
the size of the the pixel determines the uh, the amount of photons that the uh, photodiode can uh, capture or build up as an electrical charge. So I, one of the things they look for are these these uh, sensors that tend to be fairly low resolution, so they can capture these uh, faint stars. But another technique that they'll do is that they'll sometimes use a monochrome sensor, and um, and then use a series of uh, um, clear red, green, and blue filters. I'll take a series of pictures, and then they use software to stack those images up to create a color image. Um, but um, that's that's one thing you can do in the uh, in the uh, if, if you have a camera that is a monochrome and you're trying to do astrophotography. The uh, although I also have a, a customer who sent me some really fascinating pictures where he took pictures of the sun in ultraviolet and he took it at three different frequencies and then he mapped those different frequencies into visible color channels and you end up with this hyper detailed picture of the surface of the sun where you can see the sunspots and the flares um, and it was all done in the ultraviolet so that's really cool. It, it's like you're you're taking the um, you know of course in the visible spectrum we have our red green and blue color channels and uh, but if you take the ultraviolet frequencies and you divide them into its own sort of separation uh, and then combine them together back into the RGB color channels that you would when you're editing in Photoshop or any other piece of software, uh, you can expand the ultraviolet into a really full, uh, a full color uh, kind of concept and the deviations within those frequencies uh, will show you details that otherwise you would not be able to see from any particular image. That's really cool. Yeah, that's correct. I, I also, uh, we do have a series of filters. They're bandpass filters in the infrared. And I space the frequencies apart about the same uh, distance as uh, the red, green, and blue channels are spaced apart in the visible. So in a similar way, you could take a series of pictures uh, with these bandpass filters and then stack the images up and create a, um, a false color infrared picture, I guess is maybe what you call it. But it's but yeah, it's just basically mapping the um, um, remapping the color channels from one frequency to another frequency, so you can see something uh, of interest. That that's it's it's fascinating. This kind of world beyond the world that we see is uh, is near and dear to my heart, and apparently yours as well, because. You've been doing this for, uh, uh, I guess that would be almost 20 years now. And uh, how have you pushed limits since then? Like, wh where are things going with these, uh, you know, when, when you take this technology apart and put it back together in a way that was never intended by the manufacturer uh, to do all of these wonderful things? Uh, what's on the cutting edge? Well, the uh, one of the newest projects that we're working on is a uh, hyperspectral camera and uh, there's a filter that was recently made by a uh, company called Delta Optics over in Europe. And uh, they started making a full frame linear variable filter. And a linear variable filter looks kind of like a, a rainbow. Um, if you um, were to look at it, it uh, starts off on the left-hand side with um, uh, blue, and then it progresses through the uh, the visible color bands, and then it ends up on the right-hand side in the infrared. So what happens is if you put this linear variable filter over a um, camera sensor and you take a picture, then 
the first um, first columns will only see one particular blue frequency, and then as you go across the sensor, the frequencies change. Um, so uh, then what we do is we take a camera uh, that is set up that way and put it on something that will slowly move it across a scene while it's taking pictures. Um, so the uh, you end up with a whole bunch of pictures where each each picture is um, laterally offset from the previous one. So you basically do a panorama stitch of the different frequencies uh, so that you can combine them together to get what would effectively be, depending on how many pictures you take, uh, would determine the granularity of it. Uh, but you would then have images from the same camera of the same object in every different frequency? Right, right. Well, the yeah, what the software does is it creates a um, a three D data cube or data stack. So it it has a uh, it registers, it figures out how to register and line each picture with each other, and then stacks them together in a bunch of layers um, in the computer memory, and uh, and then you can then the program can go and say extract out from each layer a particular frequency. Um, and then stitch those together to form a new picture. So if you want to just extract out uh, 510 nanometers, and uh, it depends, again, on the, on the number of pictures that you took, but say if you could uh, take a 10, 10, 10 nanometer wide bandwidth and then create a new image uh, of just that particular frequency. I mean, it seems like um, that's the kind of stuff that you know, NASA might do with, uh, you know, some sort of uh, visual or um, uh, even outside of the uh, visual spectrum uh, telescope where they have them equipped with so many different filters to narrow down to very specific frequencies and then they can combine them together uh, in whatever their purposes are. Um, but this is sort of an all in one package and far less expensive than any of the technology that's come along previously, I assume. Right, right. Well, one of the the things that we've been pretty good at doing is is uh, taking some consumer sort of technology uh, and figuring out how to repurpose it and change it to do something else. The uh, uh, we did that with the vegetation remote sensing cameras, where uh, seven or eight years ago, if you wanted to buy a vegetation remote sensing camera, you'd spend six seven thousand dollars for a three megapixel custom built camera that ran on double-a batteries and didn't have a screen and uh was prone to locking up and had a uh, rolling shutter you know had just had a lot of technical um issues and we figured out how to repurpose a small consumer camera to uh do the same thing and then suddenly you could buy a remote sensing camera for 750 dollars that had 16 megapixels of resolution and didn't lock up and had good battery life and uh had a lcd display on the back and uh, around that time, the UAV technology also improved dramatically. So now suddenly you could buy these, uh, these UAVs that, um, that work pretty well. You could put one of these small cameras in it, and now you can fly over your field, and you can actually get useful data um, to help you um, optimize your agricultural resources. But so anyhow, with the hyperspectral cameras, they, they've been around for a long time too, but the thing is they typically start at a hundred thousand dollars plus holy cow yeah they're, they're they're expensive and there's a couple different types of hyperspectral cameras but um but the basic 
ideas tend to be the same. I mean, they're a lot of more like some sort of push broom sensor where they're, they're scanning um, as the camera moves across a scene and then they reassemble that into some kind of a data cube. Um, sometimes it's sensors that have um, five, six, seven, eight different um, source of color filters on the surface. So instead of having a normal Bayer pattern, they, they'll have different uh, color filters. But, um, but the problem with that is that you're still limited in the number of frequencies. You know, you might only have six or seven frequencies that you can extract. And the more of them that you put into that, the lower the resolution and detail is in each of the um, subsequent ones, right? Right, right. So, our, I mean, our, our take on the hyperspectral camera is that if um, we can, well, we're, we're pretty much there uh, by starting with a consumer sort of camera and then having the special linear variable filter and then having the software that does the post-processing needed, uh, suddenly the the price of these things can drop down from a hundred thousand plus to around ten thousand dollars so it just makes the technology way more accessible yeah, and yeah. Um, the um, you know so somebody who's say analyzing artwork um, they're looking for underpaintings or charcoal drawings or maybe they're looking they're doing mining and exploration or they're doing some kind of um, vegetation remote sensing like now some of these people that couldn't afford the hypersexual camera now it becomes relatively affordable. Yeah, it, it can fit into the budget of certain <clears throat> projects. Now, I don't know how many of those projects would be um, our artistic endeavors. It sounds much more scientific than anything, although still very fascinating. Um, I've actually been finding a, a few interesting ways to to build in <laughs> Um, uh, sort of artistic uh, pursuits in areas that uh, previously I, I don't know really have been explored that heavily uh, by photographers. One of them that uh, I'm not sure if we've talked about in the past, uh, Dan, but uh, I've been playing around with um, uh, using uh, what amounts to invisible ink. Uh, in fact, the, the actual supply of this fluorescing liquid that I have is invisible ink designed for fountain pens right now. Um, Highlighter inks and other uh, fluorescing liquids will also do the same. But the idea is that um, if I have a light source that emits only ultraviolet light, uh, so that you know there's nothing in the visible spectrum that is being emitted, I'm using a uh, a bandpass filter that does let infrared through for this, but that doesn't matter because the camera is not going to pick that up anyhow. Um, and it hits this little droplet of, um, of of liquid that then will fluoresce into the visible spectrum and will. If for the intents and purposes of the photograph, it looks like it is the light source. Uh, there's no other uh, interaction with light except from uh, within that. And it's been so much fun experimenting with this. Uh, in the wintertime, I, uh, I built some of this uh, uh, liquid into a, uh, a soap bubble mixture and made freezing soap bubbles uh, that were glowing from within. And uh, I've uh, sprayed the stuff onto like dandelion seeds and it's all these little glowing droplets that, Dumb idea to do inside the house, by the way, because now uh, in my studio, there's like invisible ink all over everything. If a team of forensic uh, photographers go in there, they will think somebody's been murdered in my studio because uh, every, everything just starts to glow. Um, but there's a lot of fun, creative ideas that we can that we can use these um, uh, this understanding of light uh, in uh, in a wonderful way. And, and I remember, you know, a quote from. A, uh, a fairly famous man in photography, uh, George Eastman, and uh, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but um, he, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, if you want to be good at photography, you have to know light, you have to, uh, you have to admire it, you have to respect it, but you have to understand it more than anything else. Uh, and the more understanding you have of light, then the better a photographer you're going to be. 
And uh, that was true in his era. He probably said that over a century ago uh, when you were dealing with chemicals and, and more equations than photographers today ever have to. But that same knowledge pushes you into a new level of creativity today uh, that other photographers may not even be able to explore because they don't even know it exists. Right. Well, um, when we make, say, a, uh, a monochrome camera that sees just visible light. So basically, instead of a, a camera that's seeing um, a normal color image, it just sees a monochrome image. One of the things I've found interesting is that it really forces you to think differently about um, what you're trying to take a picture of, because you have to think in terms of light and darkness um, rather than color. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a different style of thinking. Um, and one of the things I should point out with say a uh, monochrome camera that sees normal visible light is that you'll end up with a higher resolution image than you would with a color camera. You no, know, I noticed that because my my ultraviolet camera it has more detail than my uh, my well before when I was using the same camera for visible light stuff. Um, I was zooming in and I found an incredible difference in the quality of the uh, of just the, the finite resolution when you're really zooming in on the pixels. Uh, and I know uh, there's only I think one company that's at least targeted towards photographers making a consumer product in that, uh, and that's the Leica with their uh, Leica monochrome camera which are very expensive and very niche. Um, but, you know, there is a reason for that, uh, is that if you make just that solid monochrome camera, you get far more detail. Right, right. Well, and, and actually from what I've heard with Leica and um, uh, from some of my customers who are relatively knowledgeable is that even at that high price, Leica still has struggles making money on that camera model because the volume is so low that... Um, that it's it's just hard to make a manufacturing run. So, like these, the camera manufacturers could very easily make a monochrome camera if they wanted to. They could just leave off the color filter, right? But the problem is that they're making hundreds of thousands or millions of these sensors, and they can't afford to shut down the product line to make a thousand cameras or something. Yeah, well, but, actually, you know, Canon uh, Canon has in the past. Uh, they made a version <coughs> of the uh, the twenty D and I think a version of the sixty D that were geared towards astrophotographers. The twenty D A and the sixty D A, um, and I, assuming that the firmware and the camera and everything else is going to be identical, um, there is some small market for diverging the product line uh, for specific uses. I'm not, have you right. uh, used those cameras at all? Do you know what they do differently for them? Yeah, well, that's actually um, one of our camera conversions is a uh, what we call an H-alpha conversion. And what's going on is that the um, uh, a lot of the stars that uh, people are taking pictures of are hydrogen-based stars. And when you uh, if you look at an ionized gas, they have uh, very specific spectral lines uh, that they emit. And, uh, for hydrogen, one of those lines is, um, uh, I think it's 646 nanometers or so. And the typical camera IR cut filter is already down to maybe 20% transmission, um, when it hits that H alpha line. So if you're trying to take a picture of a star with a, a normal color camera, most of the energy from that uh, assuming it's a hydrogen star is getting blocked by the camera's IR cut filter. So what they do is they just, it's just basically a different IR cut filter where they've moved the, uh, the IR cut up higher past the H alpha line. Um, 
there's a uh, there was years back when Kodak actually made some um, monochrome digital SLR cameras, but uh, it, they had the same problem where it was just the volume was too low, and they made them for a few years and then stopped making them. Um, and just to to get back to that point on why things look sharper in monochrome, mm-hmm. the uh, for a color camera, it'll take its sharpest image if it's taking a picture of a black and white test target. And the reason for that is that all of the pixels are either on or off. The, the, uh, they're off if it's, say, the black line, and they're on when, the, uh, when you have white, since the white is, is illuminating the red, green, and blue pixels. And then this goes That's back that. to the idea of, um, of having these, these separate pixels, because you know, when we, uh, if you see like the total number of pixels, um, or photo sites, I guess is the technical term, on the camera sensor, um, that does not translate to the actual number of uh, of color pixels that we see uh, in our final image, right? So if my camera has, say, like 22 uh, million pixels, well, it might only have around 21 million effective pixels in the final image because of a process called demosaicing. I think that's where you're going, right? Well, yeah, demosaicing or debayering. But if you were to um I actually have some examples of this on the on the website. If you were to take a color camera and you get a black and white test chart and then you illuminate that test chart with a blue LED, only one in four pixels are going to see that test chart at all because the blue LEDs it's a it's a narrow spectrum light source. It's not going to trigger the green or the 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 red channels and out of every four pixels, only one of them is blue because you have um, two green, one red, and one blue. So you're, you're, when you look at the resolution of that, that picture then, you'll see that it's dramatically lower than if you took that picture under a white light. So the, the, these color cameras are always going to have the highest performance in terms of, um, of being able to, to um, see things if it's taking a picture of something that's black and white. So the, the, the color cameras... Um, they sacrifice um, the pixel density for the color information. That's right. Except for certain cameras like um, uh, Sigma uh, produces cameras with their Foveon sensors. And those are uh, the color filter array is not uh, kind of put out in, in an area, but it's rather stacked uh, on top of the photo sites, right? Right. Yeah. But the, the Foveon sensors are interesting. Uh, supposedly it came from uh, uh, some sort of... Um, uh, classified intelligence technology, but but at any rate, the the depending on the depth that the uh, photon goes through the silicon, they can figure out what color it is, and the uh, the silicon becomes transparent at say around eleven hundred nanometers. So the the uh, the blue frequencies are going to get absorbed towards the top, and then the green frequencies will be under that, and then the red frequencies are going to go down the furthest. Um, but they're, it's an interesting sensor, but it's um, not a, exactly the way they present it because, th- say, they have uh, uh, 4 million pixels that are possible on the blue layer. They'll take the 4 million and then say, well, we have three other layers, so it's a 12 megapixel camera. Yeah, not really. But it's, <laughs> but it's not, yeah, that's not exactly what's going on. Uh, well, it's like what Lytro does with their camera. Uh, I think their their Illum camera, they they claimed it's a 40 mega ray sensor. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Uh, I mean, it's it's just a confusing term that uh, that doesn't help anything. So, 
Right. I mean, it's a, it's a curious sensor and it's interesting. Um, and it takes some good pictures, but what they mean by say 12 megapixels isn't quite what the rest of the world thinks of as 12 megapixels. This is true. Um, now they're, they're interpreting that differently and they're spinning it for their marketing speak. And, uh, the end consumer that gets that camera will be sorely disappointed because they misunderstood. Um, but at the same time, it's an interesting technology, and uh, and I wish that it had greater adoption with proper marketing. Um, I, I think that it might be more effective than the current Bayer pattern uh, approach that you know we see in most consumer cameras. Although it's probably patent encumbered, and anybody that would want to use that kind of technology uh, it would probably have to charge way too much for their cameras, and uh, the engineering cost and everything else associated with it would be um, you know well outside of the norm. So uh, we're stuck in our world of using Bayer patterns or uh, Fuji has a different kind of pattern that they use. Um, and I'm sure that there are a few others as well. And we modify and we twist that into whatever purposes we, we happen to find um, when we want to dive outside of the visible spectrum. Right. I think Sony uh, made a um, sensor for a while that had four different colors. I think they added in yellow, but um, they, uh, um, I don't know that they I, I thought that was on that a line sensor. of TVs, actually. I don't know if that was in an actual um, image capturing device, but the uh, the, the Quattro uh, line of, uh, of televisions, they had that um, that fourth pixel, that yellow pixel. And it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever because in order for that to be useful, then the image capture device would have had to have recorded that sort of information. Uh, and then it would have had to have been processed through all of the, uh, the, the data channels until it reaches the... Uh, the TV with a signal that also includes that as a separate input. Uh, and so having that fourth color inside of a TV with nothing in the chain before it, uh, it, it was kind of weird. It, it's like when, when you see them advertising televisions that say, okay, well, should I buy this one that has 8 million colors or this one that has 11 million colors? Well, Dan, how many colors can the human eye actually see? Right, it sees three. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sees three colors, and then all the other colors that we see are just a mixture of uh, of how the red, green, and blue cones on our eyes are uh, and rods on our eyes are, are getting illuminated. So, it, it um, it's um, for if you say you look at a spectrometer where it can measure. Uh, hundreds or thousands of different frequencies at the same time, our eyes are really just measuring three frequencies and then we mix them together to create colors. Right. And, and uh, uh, the best that we could perceive is maybe, maybe a million, maybe two at the most, um, in most extreme situations. And beyond that, we can't see any differences between colors. If we make a, a smoother gradient between them and, and compare them, it's just, it's immaterial to, uh, to how we can see and enjoy the world around us. Well, and, but another point is that if you were to say take uh, uh, blue light and green light and um, in a certain proportion, and we'll see a, a teal color because uh, as our eyes sum up the um, those two color channels, and then you were to take say a monochromator and you tune it to the same teal color, our eyes can't tell the difference between that teal single frequency color and the mixture of the red and blue. Well, and that's the same our, way that, uh, that our eyes are tricked when we see compact fluorescent bulbs that to our eyes appear white. But then if you actually look at the light source through a spectrometer, you'll see that half of the spectrum is missing. Right. Well, a, a typical, um, say white led, they actually start off with a, um, a blue led, um, 
uh, chip or a dye that's um, that's emitting the light, and then they they add a phosphor coating that um, is typically excited by the blue light and then emits in the red. Uh, so it's a it's a mixture. Uh, uh, most white LEDs, if you look at a, the frequency spectrum, it's a mixture of um, of uh, blue light and red light, which is why most LEDs kind of have a blue tinge to them. And I do notice like some of the higher end, uh, like flashlight LEDs and things like that. I've done a few tests uh, and I noticed that they, they dip down a little bit in the blue. And I'm guessing that's because a lot of the light then gets excited away from that spectrum into the rest of the color spectrum to fill it in, right? Uh, right. And uh, the uh, one of the challenges they have though is that these phosphors have their own emission curve so you can find a phosphor that gets excited by um, say a 465 nanometer blue light but it's not going to just then match up perfectly uh, emitting the right proportions of green and red light so that um, uh, so that you get nice white light it just you know it just doesn't work that way so sometimes they'll combine multiple phosphors in the same led but it's still not going to be this the smooth kind of light source that you would get say from a incandescent bulb and you know th this is fun because i i didn't realize uh, i just put two puzzle pieces together in my head as we're having this conversation uh, i own a, um, uh, an ultraviolet uh, uh, led flashlight which is a, a fun thing to have to just go around and shine it on things to see what fluoresces um and one of the things that i pointed it at was uh, just the household led bulbs and they would fluoresce orange uh, from the ultraviolet light. And I couldn't figure out why until now I'm just putting these puzzle pieces together uh, because the actual LED inside is using the fluorescent capacity of whatever is surrounding it in order to produce a full spectrum light source or at least close to it, as close as it can. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I hadn't noticed that. But yeah, my guess would be that you're exciting those um, phosphors at that are designed to be excited by the blue light, but you could, um, you're exciting it with a, uh, a UV light and then they're glowing in the reddish orangish kind of range, which is what the way, the way these uh, white LEDs are typically made. Um, also one, one thing I should point out is that when you're dealing with UV LED flashlights, that there's a wide variety of, um, frequencies and powers of these lights and, a lot of the lights that I've actually measured UV lights are um, mislabeled in terms of what their frequency is. I, I've, I bought one on uh, on Amazon that was designed for detecting dog pee on your carpets, and uh, it, it it was blue more than anything else. And uh, and then the one that I have that I that I quite like is uh, from a flashlight company called Nightcore. And uh, they make one uh, in their Chameleon series that uh, that has a dedicated UV light that's pretty good. Although it does spill out into the violet um, that if I put one of my bandpass filters in front of, it will cut out the visible portion of that and let the ultraviolet through. But they're never a true sort of ultraviolet source. There's always something bleeding in the visible spectrum. Well, there's something, yeah, that, that is bleeding into the visible spectrum. Um, but the, from a manufacturing standpoint, to make, say, a 405 nanometer LED is much cheaper than making a 395 nanometer or a 385 nanometer LED. So like a 405 nanometer LED, let's say it costs you 10 cents, it might cost you 50 cents to make a 395. Uh, and a lot of these LEDs come out of China, and there's a lot of cheating about 
um, what these lights are because they're trying to use a lower cost LED. So uh, we once had an issue where we had some custom UV flashlights made for us and they were supposed to be 395 nanometer lights. And when we got them in, I measured them and there were 405 nanometers. Oh. You know, so suddenly I had to go through and, and relabel everything. So just uh, uh, FYI, um, another thing is that there are materials say that will fluoresce at 375 or 365 that won't fluoresce at uh, 405 or 395. So you could get a UV LED light that's 395 and it may not fluoresce certain materials at all. Like we, we have some, um, uh, some various organic dyes and phosphors and inorganic dyes and phosphors where you can see them at 365, but you can't see them at 385. Right. Well, and so uh, my light source for uh, for playing around with ultraviolet for um, for flash purposes, not flashlight, but uh, an instantaneous light source uh, is a modified xenon flash where I've removed because xenon will uh, will will emit uh, light or you know, electromagnetic radiation for that matter uh, well beyond the visible spectrum, and it does emit uh, a fair amount of of ultraviolet. So in in order to prevent people from getting like sunburn in the back of their retinas uh, when flashes are going off in their faces, there's a little blocking filter inside of every camera flash that stops ultraviolet light from being emitted, or it absorbs it or reflects it or whatever it does. Um, and so if you take the flash apart and you remove that, then you basically get a full spectrum flash. And if you put a filter on the front of the flash now that will let only ultraviolet light through, then you can create an ultraviolet light source um, that kind of fills the entire ultraviolet spectrum. I don't necessarily need a very specific band like an LED would produce. Um, and so that's what I've been currently using as, uh, as light sources. Really cheap, like old Vivitar flashes for 30 bucks. Take them apart. You're not afraid to, uh, to destroy them in the process. So... Well, the um, uh, with most of these external flashes, they also have uh, plastic filters in the front of them, and that that plastic uh, does a pretty good job of blocking UV. You know, it's it, there's not a lot of UV that gets through those things, um, and even with like a normal camera lens, uh, they can only see UV down to about 365 nanometers, and below that, you need a special kind of quartz lens or some other um, specialty lens, but. Um, some of the UV flash bulbs also have uh, UV blocking coatings on the bulb itself. Sometimes it's a like a bulb within a bulb on on some of these um, light sources where the outer uh, outer bulb uh, blocks the UV that's getting emitted by the inner bulb. But um, but uh, uh, you can go in and remove those uh, plastic filters in the front of the flash and then uh, get a fair bit of UV that comes out of it. There's is an interesting uh, photographic technique that's used in forensics where they use a UV flash and then they uh, set the camera up to uh, only see in the infrared. And so they're using the, the um, UV light to excite something. And I've seen examples where they're, say, looking at a, a document where it's faded or the water has washed it and they're trying to pick up a signature and they uh, can hit it with the UV flash and then um, have the um, the pigments fluoresce in the infrared. That's really um, interesting. And I've seen some some dyes that, that, that do that by design, but I'm sure a lot of stuff just happens that way uh, just by the very nature of however it was, uh, however it was created. Uh, Dan, <laughs> I, I want to keep going, but I, I think we're, we're almost at, at about the hour point here. Uh, and I, I, 
I'm just in awe. You've provided knowledge uh, in in this one hour that uh, so many photographers that are going to be listening to this had no idea uh, any of it existed. So uh, thank you for opening our eyes. But where can people go to find more of this information and uh, and start to explore it for themselves? Well, if you go to our website, which is maxmax.com. Now, I got to ask, Dan, why is the website called maxmax.com? Well, <laughs> uh, when I originally started the company, I had written some computer software and hardware that did home automation. And uh, it uh, the, the software and hardware package was called, was called Max Control. And um, the at that point, the internet was still fairly young. And uh, I was looking for just some sort of name that was fairly easy and... Um, and max.com was already taken. So maxmax.com was open. So I just took that. So no, no really good reason other than I was looking for something that kind of reflected the name of the product I had at the time and, and was easy to use. All right. And that, that was another one of those final curious questions that I had, um, because it had really nothing to do with the, uh, the products and everything that you were offering. So thanks for clearing that up. Um, but uh, you can find all sorts of interesting stuff on uh, on Dan's website uh, regarding uh, spectrum conversions for cameras, uh, flash sources, uh, filters, if you want to explore uh, anything. And I'll be placing in an order for some interesting filters from you there soon, Dan. Um, but, you know, oh, thanks. anything and everything that has to do with spectrums outside of the world that we see with our own eyes, um, no matter how obscure... Dan has probably done all of the research on it and has something on his website, either as far as information or something for you to buy to explore it. So, Dan, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me. And and I might want to point out that all this stuff is is self-taught. I didn't actually go to school for this. And and really where I get most of my direction is my customers call and they'll say they're trying to do something. And then I'll think about it and say, well, let me figure out if there's a way to do that. And then if I can figure out a way to do it, then I put some of the information on the website and um, uh, perhaps it develops into a new product, but it, um, if nothing else, and it just helps me become more educated in the field. All right. So then that, that, that's an invitation for anybody with curious questions, uh, that doesn't know the answer and can't find it anywhere on the internet to ask Dan. And if he doesn't know it, he's going to figure it out for you. Right. I'll try. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Dan. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, that was an incredibly technical and informative talk with Dan. Uh, I, I had a hard time keeping track of uh, where the conversation was going at times, uh, but it was so much fun. And uh, we went down a bunch of rabbit holes that I couldn't have expected and uh, it'll be fun to see if we can pick Dan's brain again in the future. Uh, if you want to find him online, again, his website is maxmax.com, M-A-X-M-A-X.com. And uh, he seems like the kind of guy that will answer any question you throw at him. And he's got a lot of awesome stuff on his website for you to check out. So I encourage you to do that. And we will see you next time on Inside the Lens. Inside the Lens.